Please turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, and our text will be verses 1 to 5. We are nearing the end of this wonderful book, book that really confronts us with who we really are and even our own tendencies as we see those very same traits within Jonah himself, as we will see tonight also, but also about the mercy and the grace of God. And as I've shared with you before in the past couple of weeks, I'm so thankful for the scripture giving this portrait of this man. I'm thankful for Jonah because Jonah being a rebellious prophet, prone to wonder, all of that, really gives us great encouragement knowing how the Lord deals with him, even in his own rebellion, is how the Lord deals with us often in ours, is to still be merciful, to still be loving, to recognize that we are still his, that he does not desert us, he does not leave us. Tonight we are looking at Jonah's response to what God is doing in Nineveh. We're looking at his response to God's grace, God's mercy, now, I want you to think of this because Jonah is really going to say some uh, very bold things to our Lord uh, in our passage tonight to, to really justify himself and how it is that he is feeling. I want you to think of whoever you consider to be the greatest enemy of the nation of America. We might have differing opinions as to who that would be or what group that would be or, or whatever. But just consider the greatest enemy to the United States today. Whether it's externally, whether that's your view, whether it's internally, if that's your view. Now, recognize that as, and, and I'm really pulling this from Dr. Beakey in this, this example, he used something different, but... Now consider this, that within 20 years, let's say, this particular group of people that are the enemies of the United States are going to destroy the United States within 20 years. This nation that we all love and, and we're patriotic about all of this. Now, get that in your mind. Now consider this. That the Lord says to you, I want you to arise and I want you to go to that group of people and I want you to preach to them. Now, having the same mindset as Jonah, we know that the Lord is merciful, the Lord is gracious, and we have this suspicion that the Lord is going to have us to go to them, that he would be gracious to them. Now, what are your thoughts internally as you consider that? Sometimes our thoughts would be, there is no way that I'm going to do that because in 20 years, they're going to destroy America. And yet you want me to go to them? 
We may think, well, considering what they're going to do in the coming generations, they don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve to hear uh, the gracious words of the gospel. That's often how we think. We are zealous sometimes for the Lord's sake. Sometimes we're really thinking of our own self as we are very self-centered people. For those that really anger us and those that upset us, we think very, very quickly, Lord, let me press the button. Let me take care of this. And anything otherwise, as far as grace and mercy is concerned, that is not on our minds. That's where Jonah is only amplified. Because being a prophet of the Lord and being contemporaries with some of the other prophets, Jonah would have had an idea that the Lord is going to use Assyria in order to judge the northern kingdom. Because the prophets foretold that. He knew of the times in which the Assyrians had already tried to perhaps attack Israel in time past. And this is the great enemy. This is a pagan society. This isn't the covenant people of God. These aren't the ones that the Lord has said he was going to be gracious to or any of that. And in Jonah's mind, they don't deserve it. They do not deserve any portion, any degree of God's grace. That's where he's at. That's probably the initial reason why he decided to flee, as we've been talking about. If that's why I'm going, here's your calling. Take it back. I'm not doing it. That was the whole point. A lot of times that's where we are. And even when we tend to remind ourselves or be reminded of the grace of God, whether it's because of certain things that come about in our own lives that, that force us to flee back to the Lord, give us a little bit of time. And we'll be right back at the same mindset. Because we are prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. But you know the great message of Jonah. Is. The Lord still has mercy on him. Even in the midst. Of, of his arrogance. And his pride. Even in the midst of his anger. At the Lord thinking that the Lord should do otherwise. God is gracious and merciful still to his own people. And we're going to look at that tonight. Jonah's response to God's mercy and grace toward Nineveh. And then we will see as well our Lord's response to Jonah. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're looking at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> this is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, 
for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word. And thank you for all that it teaches us of your character, of your patience, of your grace, of your mercy. Oh, Father, let, let our hearts be uh, just captivated by the nature of God that is put on display for us in this passage. That we, too, would seek to be imitators of God as beloved children. Father, bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we remember that Jonah has went to the city. Jonah has preached. We talked about the, the content of Jonah's preaching was probably more than what we read here. In uh, chapter 3, verse 4, where, where we read... Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Most likely this is a summary of what Jonah had preached as he went through the city. Because the Ninevites had to have some idea of who they're repenting to. And so since the Ninevites have, or the king rather, of Nineveh has, has called for a fast and a proclamation throughout Nineveh. Uh, and, and, and hoping uh, that God would be merciful to them. He had to have an understanding of which God was going to bring the calamity. And so there must have been more information that Jonah had preached uh, to the people. Though because of our passage tonight, we understand that he probably did this um, very much in, in perhaps a bitter manner in one sense. Um, maybe a little reluctant uh, to, to say certain things. But nevertheless, he said what God wanted him to say. What he was uh, appointed to say. And as a result of what Jonah had preached. We, we see that the, the city is affected by this preaching of God's word. The city repents. And in verse 10 we read. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Now, Jonah has went through the city. He has preached in the power of God, applying his word to the hearts of the people there. They have repented. And as a result of their repentance, then God relents from bringing the calamity that he threatened to bring. Now, we would sometimes, I mean, you, you think of this. This is something really to be joyful about. Wow, these people, this great city that was once pagan have turned to the Lord. They have called upon him. They have hoped in him that he would be merciful. This is something to look at and say, wow, this is, wow, look at, this is what you can do, Lord. This is your power at work in the hearts of your creation. That's not where Jonah's at. As a result of this great moving of God in the hearts of this, this pagan society, this once pagan society, this great enemy of Israel, the passage tells us 
It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And this isn't just meaning he was a little upset. The idea here that is being conveyed in this passage is, is to the, the, the greatest superlative here. He was exceedingly angry. Greatly angry. Why? Because the people that he hated were the recipients of God's grace. And he's angry. Again, this isn't just a matter of just being a little bit upset. Well, things didn't quite turn out how I initially thought that they were. This is great anger that he is experiencing. And why is he experiencing that great anger? Again, because when it comes back down to the relationship of Israel and Assyria, these were enemies. And again, Assyria is going to be the rod of God's anger that he's going to bring down the northern kingdom with. The northern kingdom is going to fall to Assyria in the same century in which Jonah is preaching. And like I said, as the prophets had foretold of this, the prophets had prophesied that this was going to happen. Jonah most likely had this understanding. Think of what they're going to do. They should have been destroyed now, so maybe that the calamity wouldn't come later. Perhaps he was angry because here Israel, the northern kingdom, is worshiping idols continually into their idolatry. And yet this pagan society over here repents because of your moving in them. Not them, not your covenant people, but this pagan people over here. How can you do that? Was he angry because he had went through this city and he had been preaching calamities coming, judgments coming? Then it don't happen. So as some theologians think, well, maybe maybe he was thinking that the people of the city would just look at him as a false prophet because you prophesied something and it didn't happen. Or maybe... Maybe Jonah was angry because calamity didn't happen. And he's going to end up going back to the land of Israel and explaining to the covenant people of God what just happened with their enemies. You mean to tell me you went there and you preached to them and they repented? And this is the same group that that prophet over there is saying is going to, going to destroy us? You did what? Maybe that's why he's angry. It could be in some ways that he's zealous for the Lord's sake. That he's angry because this people had lived in rebellion for so long. Serving their other gods and all of that. That could be a small portion of it. But most likely it's because Jonah is very self-centered. And Jonah is angry because of his own self. And because the way he thinks he thinks. Things ought to have been. They deserve judgment. But you didn't do it. You know. You have 40 days that are mentioned here. Yet in 40 days. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And so you have the king that had issued this proclamation. And he says. In, uh, back in chapter 3 verse 7. In Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. 
but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And so for 40 days, perhaps the people in Nineveh, they are seeking God earnestly. They are trying to turn from their wicked way. And the whole time they're hoping, I, I pray that you are merciful. They're waiting for this 40 day period. What's going to happen? And as other men have pointed out, just as the Ninevites were waiting this 40 days and praying that God would be merciful, Jonah's waiting too. And Jonah's intent is much different than what the Ninevites are. His intent is two more days. Well, one more day, tomorrow it's going to happen. At least it better happen. And then the 40th day comes. And the Lord doesn't do it. Instead, the Lord had mercy upon this nation. All of his expectations building up over this period of time, waiting to see the annihilation of his enemies. And instead, God extended grace to them. So, yeah, he's very angry. Angry for his own sake, angry for his country's sake. And here's what he says. He's exceedingly angry. And here's what he does. Now this time, I will say this. He does not flee from the presence of the Lord. Instead, he does turn and begin to pray to the Lord. The passage tells us he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord. Now, think of how he's saying this. For, for all of us here, whether you're a parent or you've said this to other people, you've went up to them and said, did I not tell you that that was going to happen? And there you went and did it. Didn't I tell you? This is what's happening. He says, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? He's pointing back to the Lord and he says, this is exactly what I knew was going to happen, and that's why I fled the other way. In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. What's he doing? He's justifying his previous actions. Now, we would think, you know, after all that you, you just had happened to you, you know, you just got on the ship to go the other way, and... Then you have this great wind that comes along the sea and nobody's able to do anything or get to the shore and everybody's fearing for their life. You get thrown into the water and then a big fish swallows you. Haven't you learned your lesson yet? And in one sense, there has been some growth there. We could look at that. He confessed himself that salvation is of the Lord. He made a great confession while he was in the belly of the fish. He had a recognition there that he needed God's grace and mercy himself. But give a little bit of time, even after his lesson has been learned in one sense, give him a little bit of time and he's back over here. Justifying 
what he had previously done. And this is so interesting. He says to the Lord, these are things that we read of in Exodus 34. When the Lord passes by Moses and he proclaims his name, these are the very attributes that he proclaimed to Moses. That Jonah, some 700 years later, is recounting back to the Lord. He said, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. While Jonah is pitching a fit in his anger, he's looking at the Lord and saying, I knew this would happen because you're slow to anger. Well, he was very quick to get on the, the anger kick there. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. And that tells you something there about the condition of his heart when it came to the people of Nineveh. He knew that the Lord was compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abundant loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. And he did not want that. He did not want the Lord to be gracious and compassionate. He didn't want the Lord to be slow to anger. He wanted a quick tempered action by the Lord. But that's not what happened. And this is the content of his prayer. You know, one writer did say this. He said, agitated and alarmed, he fled from the Lord. Agitated and alarmed now again, he does flee to the Lord. This time he is coming to the Lord in prayer, even though he's angry, even though he's still in his pride. In his arrogance, he's saying these things unto the Lord. And he ends it with this. That's really the content of his, his, his prayer. You're one who relents concerning calamity. I didn't want it to happen. And yet there it is. You would think that Jonah would be very appreciative that the Lord is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. Rather than resenting the fact. Now, what is it that's happening here? You could look at this and say, in one sense, Jonah himself hath learned of the grace and compassionate and the, the compassionate nature of God. And he appreciated that God was toward him. But then when it came to those that he did not like, there was that element there of almost saying, I deserved it, but they don't. And he's basically telling the Lord how things should have been while elevating himself to a status that does not belong to him. He doesn't see himself to be an equal of the Ninevites as far as grace and mercy are concerned. He doesn't see that he needed that grace and mercy as, at the same extent as they did, the same degree as they did. He doesn't see himself as, as vile as them. And yet, they repented. He's the one who's talking back to the Lord. We often do the same, and that's why I'm so grateful for this book of Jonah. Because it really reflects so much of our own emotions and thinking 
Because we elevate ourselves to say, Oh Lord, I appreciate the grace and the mercy and the love that you extended to me. And while we may not come out and say, I deserved it, because we readily acknowledge we don't, but there's still a little bit of a hint there in which we still elevate ourselves above others because we view them as being more vile, more wicked, more evil. Oh Lord, they don't deserve it. But thank you that I received it. Jonah resents the fact that God is gracious here. It's almost reminiscent of the prodigal son, isn't it? Not necessarily with everything that happened there, but once the younger son comes home and the father is gracious to him and lavishes upon him all this blessing, the older brother is bitter towards the father because he was gracious to the wayward son. The very similar situation there. And that's how we, we often are. We view people as being more vile and wicked than, than we ever could have been in one sense. But if we just stop to think for a moment that if it weren't for the grace of God being extended to us, we could be just like them or worse. And I know we don't like to think, you know, exactly of how vile that we can be, but we know our thoughts. We know the, the very things that go through our minds. We know how evil that we can think. What is it that restrains us? Is the spirit of God who is within us and that reflection and the recognition of the one who has saved us. How can we sin so greatly as he has been so gracious? And so we have restraint with other things factoring in as well, of course. But if we didn't have that, we didn't have the restraining grace of God in our life. The very things that we think and the very things, the, the evil thoughts that come to our mind, who's to say that we would not carry it out? And think of how others would view us, of how wicked and vile that we could be. Because we could be. But we don't think, we don't really think that. We, we don't consider that. The only thing that we know is the state in which we think now and the, and the restraints that we have now by the grace of God and the spirit working in us to to help us to overcome certain things. But we don't look at the fact of the unbeliever being in that state of depravity. That they don't have the same restraints as we do in one sense. Granted, the common grace of God does restrain evil. The presence of the people of God within a nation can restrain evil but not to the extent of genuine believers. We are no more deserving of God's mercy and grace than anyone else. We have enemies in this nation, internal enemies that we look at, and we look at in disgust, And we think to ourselves, you wait till you take your last breath. Oh, when you take your last breath, you will see differently. You know, they don't know God and they're in rebellion. We do know God and we can still be in rebellion. 
We do, we're not as gracious as our God is. For he is gracious and compassionate. He's abundant in loving kindness or compassion. He's, that loving kindness is that, that loyal, deep love. He's one who relents concerning calamity as he did in, in every one of our lives. As he withholds now judgment from us on account of his son. How are we any better? Or how do we think ourselves more deserving than who we consider to be enemies? We really don't stop to, to think and consider. Now, what does end up happening is the very thing that's happening in Jonah. He says to the Lord, I knew this would happen. And then he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. I would rather die than to see this. I would rather die than have to go back home and tell the people of God that you were gracious to a pagan nation. I'd rather die. Just take my life. Death is better than enduring this. What bitterness is in his heart? He's consumed with self-pity. And self-pity is where we often land. Oh, Lord, if you had only chose differently in the way that I think that you should have done it. How things would be so much better if you had just done what, what I thought was best. And you know what the Lord says? He doesn't say, because you keep questioning my goodness... And because you keep questioning my character and you keep questioning my holy nature, I'm done with you. Instead, the Lord looks at the rebellious prophet, this bitter prophet, and he says, Do you have good reason to be angry? Really just to stop him in his tracks, isn't it? All this complaining and all this questioning of God. And I would have done it better. And I knew you would be this way. And the Lord says, do you have good reason to be angry? Well, what does that mean? Jonah, have you not received grace? Have you not received mercy? Have you not received the blessing of being a prophet of the Lord? What is it that you have received that you can even complain about? Jonah doesn't answer. And he probably had nothing that he could answer. And it reminds me a lot of, of the prophet Habakkuk. After the prophet comes to the Lord and he says to the Lord in the very first chapter, Lord, you need to do something about your people. Look at it. Look at how wicked they are. Look at what they're doing. Why aren't you doing something? And the Lord says, you wouldn't believe me if I told you what I'm doing. But he says to the prophet, basically, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and I'm going to use them as the instrument of my anger against my people. 
And then Habakkuk says, how can you do that? Here he's praying for the Lord to do something. And now when the Lord tells him what he's going to do, how can you do that? They're more wicked than your own people. Oh, Lord, you can't look on wickedness with favor. Your eyes are too, too pure for that. And as he begins to question the very character of God, I love this. He says to the Lord, now I'm going to go sit in the tower and wait for you to reprove me. Because he knows that he's wrong. And he waits for the Lord to reprove him. And as Jonah has been saying all of this, it was just a matter of moments before the Lord was going to reprove him. And he did it simply by asking, really, a rhetorical question. Do you have good reason to be angry? And the answer is no. I don't have good reason. So Jonah goes out from the city, sat in the east of it, makes a shelter for himself, and he sat under it. See what was going to happen to the city. God had only manifested grace to Jonah. And that's why he says, do you, do you have any reason to be angry? Any good reason? I've only been gracious to you. Do we really have good reason to be angry with the Lord as often as we are justifying ourselves and so many emotions that go through our minds or why it is that the Lord isn't doing this in the country or this in the country. And we look at, uh, at our fellow countrymen, our, our fellow Americans, and we have such distaste for them. We, we look on them with just disgust. Why aren't you doing something? Oh, Lord, it would be different if I were in charge. If I were in charge. Do you have good reason to be angry? Because God has only manifested grace to you. Are there times in which we should be angry because of what we see going on? As we know, it's an offense to the Lord. Yes, absolutely. Because we recognize that sin is, is offensive to our holy God. We get angry when we see the Lord mocked and various things like that. But what shouldn't happen is that in light of what an unbeliever is naturally doing, that we develop bitterness in our hearts towards them, that we have no compassion for them in the state in which they're in. They are enemies of God because they are unregenerate. But shouldn't then our desire be, O oh Lord, as you have shown me grace whenever I was an enemy. O oh Lord, let me pray for them that you would show them grace as you did me. Use me as an instrument, not of, of my own, my, my own liking or my own desires, but use me as an instrument in your hand to be one who extends compassion and grace. We draw so many lines. Here's this line here. I have nothing to do with you. Here's this line here. I have nothing to do with you. I'm only going to be within my little group of people that I agree with. And anybody that is an unbeliever especially. 
I have no time to talk to you because I'm sure since you're an unbeliever, you must agree with this. And you probably agree with this. And I am unwilling to have any conversation with you and, and uh, definitely unwilling to give you the good news of the gospel. Dear friends, imagine, imagine if God was that way towards us. There would be no hope of salvation for any. None. You know, there's so much, so much talk today about what should happen with the nation. And you, you start hearing words about Christian nationalism and Christendom and various topics like that that are really growing topics. How should we engage the culture and what should we do and all of this? And there's various ideas. Well, we need people to be in positions of leadership in, in the local cities and in, then in the state and then in the government in order to guide everything the way it should be. And, you know, it's good to have, it's good to have Christian people in positions of leadership and we need that. We do need that. We need, we need believers not just to be within the leadership within a church, but we need Believers to be in leadership in every part of life, every part of the culture, in order to try to help guide things in the way that God would uh, be desirous of or what pleases the Lord. Because we know that whatever is pleasing to the Lord is going to be best for the society anyway. We recognize that. But to forcefully put on the entire nation to dictate how things ought to be is jumping the gun. Because the very thing that changes a nation is not forcing people to do anything as it is allowing the gospel to do the work in the hearts of the people. If we want to change the culture, yes, we need people in positions of leadership in every part of, of culture. But it must be that what is first and foremost, if we desire to reach our enemies or de desire to deal with our enemies or whatever the case may be, it must be that the gospel is first and foremost. And in order to do that, then that means we must have a heart for the lost. Not built up anger and resentment, but to have compassion for those that are perishing. That the gospel would be first and foremost. A lot of times we would just like to say, you know what? If we pass some laws, you couldn't do that. And how great that would be. Forcing you to do this or forcing you to do that. But what's that going to produce? Some kind of a moralism? Nominal Christianity? It has to be the gospel. The gospel is what penetrated an entire empire. The gospel conquered an empire by faithful people of God preaching, sharing, declaring the good news of the gospel. Because they recognized the impact of a society or what impacts a society is God's word. Not by anything that we do our, in our own power or what we could do in our own power but it has to be God's word because God's word is what changed an entire pagan city here and it happened not by any 
clever ideas. It happened not by any eloquent speech. It happened because the rebellious prophet, probably into having bitterness in his heart, went through the city and said what was true, and the Lord used it. The Lord can do mighty and great things if we stick to what is first and foremost, which is the gospel. So when you look at the unbelieving and you see how vile and wicked that they are, and as angry as we sometimes would be tempted to be, oh, Lord, they do that because they don't know you. They're not doing anything that should be really a surprise because the unbelieving naturally depart away from the Lord. They hate the light. They love darkness. They do what is natural to them. There's no surprises here. Oh, Lord, give me a heart for them. Let me not get so bitter that I would withhold telling them of the grace of God. But do a mighty work in my heart that I would have compassion on them. That's what we have to pray for because it's very easy to go the other way, just as we see with Jonah. But do we really have any good reason to be angry because of how things are going at the moment? And the answer is no, because God's grace has never left us. God's mercy has never been withheld from us. God's love has never been withdrawn from us. We have no good reason to be angry. But we should be praying, Oh Lord, do the work in them as you did me. I was them. And you had mercy. Oh Lord, you can do anything you desire. Anything that you please because you have the power to change hearts in a moment. Just as you've done Throughout all your word. Give me compassion that I pray for that. Give me a heart that I pray for that. And I don't pray only for their destruction. Because I'm angry at what they do. God has been merciful and gracious to us. And the scripture says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. So let us pray for that. Praying that the Lord would, would help us rather than in our pride trying to dictate to the Lord what we think is better. We should be relying on God's most holy and wise plan. He's got it all figured out. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to try to help guide him. He's already got it figured out. He's already got it planned out. He's already got it decreed in the way that he wants it to be. So let us rest then in God's sovereignty, in God's wisdom, in God's compassion and love for sinners. And let us pray that we could be imitators of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Your abundant loving kindness. Oh, Father, if you weren't 
not one of us here would have any hope. For every moment of our lives, we have sinned against you. There's not a time in our life where we have not. But you are merciful and compassionate. Thank you that you're not like us. Help us, Lord, that we don't try to make you like us, but that, that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work to help us to be more like you. And that you would be pleased with our dealings with our enemies, your enemies. And that perhaps, Father, if it be your will, you would use us in order to help snatch them from the fire, as your word says, to be instruments, to bring them to you. We know that you can do all things. Nothing is impossible with you. No nation is so far gone that the gospel cannot penetrate a heart. No people are so far gone. Let us remember that. Let us be thankful that you have kept us in your hand. You preserve us. Let us remember what mercy that we have received and continue to receive. What grace we have received and continue to receive. Let us be mindful of how we ought to be. Father, do a mighty work within us and use us to do a mighty work within this country. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.